am much more comfortable in front of a classroom, um, but at least there's about half of you out there or maybe a third that I teach or have taught, so it's a little bit more comfortable for me um, than perhaps in other situations. Um, it's a bit ironic because if you were here last time I preached, I preached about a book, call it the English um, Teacher Curse. Um, but I read this book here. I'll project it in a moment so that you can see it. Um, and since I read this book, it's been on my heart to share it. Um, just a few weeks ago, I was actually sitting in church listening um, to Pastor Sean as he was speaking, totally different topic, nothing to do with it. And I felt this prompting just to write it down. And I thought that's a bit odd. I'm not one to volunteer to preach by any means. Um, and I even thought to myself, and this is a crazy thing, I thought, hey, maybe I should just say to Sean, if you ever need someone to preach like on an you know, unspecified topic, like, you know, I could maybe wouldn't say that. Um, but God clearly knew that wasn't my style because literally after that church service, she doesn't know this, but Ava showed up to me and she stood in front of me and she went, she looked really like nervous about asking me this question. She goes, oh, Belinda, we just, we can't get anyone to preach on the 9th. Is there any chance you're around? I know it's last minute, but is there any chance you might be willing to preach on this day? And it's that awful moment when you realise that you can't argue with the thought that you've just had and a commitment you've just made in your head. And it was also probably one of those few moments where I truly felt that it was a prompting from God. So cautiously though, because I had a second condition, because I wasn't just going to preach about anything, I asked her, is there a topic? A bit nervously, because I was scared what her answer would be, kind of hoping she'd say something and I had an excuse to say no. Um, and she said, no, there's no topic, no topic at all. And so in my head, I paused for a moment and I knew, and in that moment, I just couldn't say no. So here I am saying yes, not because I like preaching, um, but because I believe that this is a message that for some reason God wanted me to share. So before I start, let me just pray again, and then we'll begin. Lord, I just want to thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you for the school holidays as well, Lord. And I just pray um, that as I speak today, these words will not be my words, but they will be your words, that you will speak through me. All right, so I can claim, I need to preface today by saying that I can claim literally no credit or wisdom for any of the thoughts that I'm about to share with you. This is almost completely copyrighted from this book, um, but I figure if I preface that and, you know, reference it well, then, you know, it's not a plagiarism issue. Is that right, Sam? It's all good? Okay, cool. Um, so many of them stem from this book here. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it's by John Mark Comer. Again, I kind of randomly came across this book. And while I can't, for obvious reasons, uh, sit up here today and read the book to you, I hope to share some of its core messages and my journey with my own hurry addiction. Um, I found this book, or rather this book found me a few months ago when I was feeling incredibly burnt out, exhausted, tired 24-7. And I don't stand here before you today as a master or an expert who has eliminated hurry from my life. I'm still a stress head. I still worry. Just ask Joey. Um, but I stand before you today as someone who's on that journey. In fact, I'm a teacher, as most of you know, which in other words is the profession known as 
The job you have to work before you get to work, so you have work to do at work, then because I had no time at work to do the work, I have to work after work to catch up on the work I didn't do while at work. Might need to read it a few times, but I'm sure most of the teachers in the room will understand it completely. So to say that work-life balance is a struggle is a bit of an understatement. Um, It's very rare that you'll see a teacher not in a hurry, take Mr Shepherd for example, who literally runs around the school, or when asked about their week will say that it wasn't busy. Typically we have the great answer of, it was good but busy, or it was alright but busy. It's just a part of our life. And honestly, this book is challenging because it's very confronting in its message and um, in its self-awareness. But when I read it, I didn't feel judged for my addiction to hurry. I felt freed. And I felt this kind of freedom that only comes when someone is able to put exact words to what you are feeling. Those words came from the raw and honest journey of a burnt out church pastor. I finally had a diagnosis for this unnamed disease that I had been struggling from. And one of the best things about receiving a diagnosis is the opportunity for some kind of cure or antidote. I'm not here to judge you today or to tell you you do have a hurry addiction, but I hope that somehow through me sharing some of my journey and my honest words that I'll be able to put words to what some of you might be feeling today. These are not a set of ideals to be admired, but to be challenged by. And I hope that I can challenge some of you in the way that I've been challenged. So let's talk about the problem. The problem is that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And in fact, in the opening lines of his book, he states, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And you might be asking why? Well, as Corrie ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. For the record, being addicted to hurry isn't about being addicted to a job. As I'm sure for some of you who work casual jobs, you just work in a job to get by, work is not your life. But hurry is not just about a degree, it is not about a job, it is not about a career, it could be a factor. But it is something that is ingrained in our culture. It's the constant activity, the never-ending to-do lists, multitasking, the guilt in simply sitting still and being silent, something that we are very uncomfortable with in this day and age. Both sin and busyness have the same effect. They cut off your own soul. Given there is a healthy kind of busyness where life is full of good things that fill your soul. By that definition, Jesus himself was busy. But the problem isn't when you have a lot to do. It's when you have too much to do that the only way to keep the quota up is to hurry. And the problem with that is that hurry and love are completely incompatible. They do not mix. In 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, the first descriptor of love is that it's patient. There's a reason that people talk about walking with God and not running with God. And thank goodness for that. It's because God is love. In fact, hurry is incompatible with all of the big three love, joy, and peace, all of which Jesus is trying to grow in our lives. 
Instead of simply having busy periods of our lives now, many of us, myself included, live in this thing that is like an epidemic of pathological busyness, where it's the norm. Our default settings have changed. We assume that chronic hurry is normal. But it was really this quote by John Ortberg that really hit me. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. So are you a victim like me? Are you ready for a little self-diagnosis? If you're willing, try this little checklist with me and see if maybe you, like me, have suffered from or are suffering from this hurry addiction. Here we go. Number one, irritability. You get mad, you get frustrated, or you get annoyed just a little too easily. Little normal things irk you. For this one, don't look at how you treat your colleagues at work or even your your siblings, your parents, your husband. Sorry, Joey. Number two, hypersensitivity. A minor comment hurts your feelings. A grumpy email turns you off. A little turn into major emotional events. Restlessness. When you try to slow down and relax, you can't. You multitask, watching TV and scrolling through social media. Cleaning, answering emails, doing anything but just sitting and doing one thing at a time. Workaholism, or just non-stop activity. You don't know when to stop, or you can't stop. It's not just about your job, but about any activity that takes up your time, that is all-consuming. Emotional numbness, you just don't have the capacity to feel another's pain or your own pain for that matter. Out of order priorities, you get sucked into the urgent, not the important. Your life is reactive, not proactive. You are busy, but you don't actually have time for what truly matters to you. Lack of care for your body, sleep, exercise, nutrition, first thing to go. Escapist behaviours. When you're too tired to do what's actually life-giving for your soul, you turn to a distraction of your choice. Whether it's food, Netflix, social media, online shopping, the list goes on. Slippage of spiritual decisions. When you get busy, prayer, Sabbath, worship, time with God is the first thing to go out the window. And isolation. You feel disconnected from God, from others, and even yourself. When you actually try to spend time with God or people, you can't and too distracted. So how'd you score? I'm not willing to share my exact score from when I read this, um, but let's say it was more than a solid passing grade. And again, I'm not here to judge and I'm not here to accuse you. I'm a fellow hurry addict. I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. But the purpose of today is not for me to just make you feel like you have an addiction. I want to provide you with a solution. And it's not a new solution. It is an age-old solution that hit me in a new way. The answer to this is not more hours in the day, as many of us, myself included, often wish for. It's actually to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. 
I was one of the first to claim that I simply didn't have time to devote to the things that matter. Then I was confronted by these internal questions. How many hours do you devote to TV? How many hours do you devote to social media? Are you really too busy or are you just too busy for God? Ouch. I literally deleted all of my social media apps from my home screen there and then before I kept reading. And perhaps I'm not alone because according to a report released in 2021 in Australia, the daily time spent on the internet has increased from 5 hours 41 minutes, very specific, to 6 hours 13 minutes just in the past year. Or, in other words, we spend close to 40% of our waking hours using the internet. Social media now, at 1 hour 46 minutes per day, I think that's conservative for some of us, accounts for roughly one-third of the time spent online, making it the second most popular media activity for Australians after watching television. So if it's not a matter of what we need being more time, what is the solution? Well, I believe that the solution is Jesus. We are called to be disciples or apprentices of Jesus. To apprentice under Jesus means to organise your life around three basic goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he would do if he were you. Sounds simple, right? Simple words, big invitation. It's an invitation to live counterculturally. Ironically, Jesus doesn't actually command us to wake up in the morning, have some quiet time, read our Bibles, live in community, live a life of service. He simply does those things and then says, come, follow me. He issues this invitation again and again throughout the New Testament. And my favourite rendition of this invitation is Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Are you tired? Worn out, burned out on religion. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Sounds pretty good, right? I don't know if there's anyone who doesn't want that. In other translations, we have this word yoke that is used. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, a humble and gentle at heart, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. If you aren't familiar with primitive farm equipment, a yoke is simply a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to the plow or the cart that they have to pull. In some countries around the world, they're still used today. Jesus' invitation to take up his yoke simply means to travel life at his side, learning from him and how to shoulder the weight of life with ease. The secret to adopting the easy yoke is that we actually have to adopt Jesus' overall lifestyle. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, to put this in perspective, because often we get these things kind of the same. 
I greatly admire people who love running, particularly people who love running marathons um, or Ironman or triathlons or any of those ultra fitness events. And I look at them. I see them running. I see Cam Roper often on the way home from work, you know, doing his run down the road. And I look at them and I go, that's awesome. I wish I was a marathon runner. I wish I was an ultra athlete. And you see them posing and you see them, you know, running in their events and everything. And you see their physique. You see the level of fitness. And you think to yourself, I want that. I want their life. Yet the reality is that would require me waking up at ungodly hours of the morning or coming home from work and running, probably giving up a lot of the foods that I enjoy, probably giving up a lot of time in order to, you know, eat celery and salad and protein shakes and run for hours and hours and hours. I want their life, but the reality is I'm not willing to adopt their lifestyle in order to get that life. And sometimes that's how we view Jesus. We want his peace, his joy, his relaxed manner and think, I want that life, but we're often not willing to adopt his lifestyle. Why? Because it's hard. It's not easy. It is completely at odds with our culture, in fact. We find ourselves motivated when we listen to a great sermon, attend a conference, youth rally, storm co, big camp, summer camp, and we go, yes, God, I want that life. And then we go home, we return to our life, A week later, we're back to doing exactly what we were doing before and nothing has really changed. What's ironic, and this is probably what I love most about God's invitation to take up his yoke, his invitation to find rest for our souls, is that yokes are for farming. They are not for rest, a piece of farm equipment. God is offering tired, burnt out people a work instrument. I don't know about you, but when I'm tired, I probably want to come home and go to bed or maybe go on a vacation. I don't want to grab one of Joey's power tools. But that's the beauty of Jesus' invitation. Jesus doesn't offer us an escape. He offers us something far better, a yoke, equipment. He offers his apprentices a whole new way to bear the weight of our humanity, with ease, at his side, like two oxen in a field tied shoulder to shoulder, with Jesus doing all the heavy lifting, at his pace, slow, unhurried, present to the moment, full of love and joy and peace. Here's the kicker. An easy life isn't an option, but an easy yoke is. So what is this life template? What does it actually mean to live the lifestyle of Jesus? Jesus' schedule was full, to the brim at times, in a good way. Yet he never, ever once came off as hurried. He never multitasked. I don't know about you, but I can't picture Jesus. Obviously, phones weren't invented back then. But with a phone or a scroll in his hand, reading while he's talking to someone or listening to someone. He's not texting at the same time. He's not multitasking. He is fully present. He was never in a rush. Literally, people were dying. And yet he still took his sweet time. Take Lazarus and Jairus' daughter, for example. When Jesus found out his friend, 
very close friend was sick, he didn't rush. Instead, he said, let's go to Jerusalem. When Jairus' daughter was dying and he begged Jesus to come quickly and heal her, Jesus stopped to heal the bleeding for 12 years. Can you imagine how impatient that man would have been? I know I would have been there, hands on hips, tapping my foot and probably puffing out breaths of frustration. Jesus took all the time in the world with that woman. He stopped, he had a conversation with her, he didn't just heal her. Yet Jesus ended up healing both of these people, raising both from the dead in his own time and way. Jesus was constantly interrupted, yet he never once comes off as agitated or annoyed by that fact. He embraces it. So how did he live? What principles can we adopt as an antidote to our hurry addiction? Here we go. Number one, Jesus injected a heavy dose of margin into his life. Now, margin is simply the space in between our load and our limits, having that breathing space. For many of us, myself included a lot of the time, there is no margin. We are simply at 100% capacity all the time. Number two, Jesus would regularly get up early and go off to a quiet place to be with his father. He always greeted if instead of reaching for your phone as soon as you get up in the morning, you actually took a couple of moments with Jesus. Jesus would sometimes go away overnight or even for a few weeks at a time just to get away from the crowds and gather himself to God. Jesus is giving you permission to take a holiday, to take some time away from the crowds. More than once we read stories about Jesus sleeping and the disciples having to wake him. This is a man who liked his sleep and would sleep in at times. Again, something I can probably relate to from time to time. Probably my favourite one, every chance he got, he would enjoy a nice long meal with friends, creating space for in-depth conversations about the highs and the lows of life. He would practice Sabbath every single week. He would rest, he would worship every single week. He practiced simplicity before it was cool. All he had was just the clothes on his back. He put on display an unhurried life where space for God and love for people were his top priorities. And because he said yes to the Father and his kingdom, he constantly said no to countless other invitations. Yes, Jesus is giving you permission to say no because you can't say yes to everything. My question is, what do you have to say no to in order to say yes to Jesus and to the health of your soul? Ultimately, if we're to summarise this to simplify it, it comes down to four steps. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity and slowing. When we talk about silence and solitude, perhaps this is one that, for some of you, this will be the toughest out of all of them because your life is constant people. 70% of people sleep next to their phones and 90% of us check them immediately upon waking up. It's a default setting. What if we gave this time to God instead? What would that look like? I challenge you to try it for even a week. How often do you turn off the noise to sit in solitude? 
even on the toilet now. We are rarely in silence or solitude, thanks to our phones. They've made waterproof phones. They come into the showers. When are you actually truly separated from noise from people? I had a pastor um, when I lived down south on the central coast at the Haven Church. His name was Pastor Nim or Pastor Nimrod. Um, Some of you might know him. Um, By far, he has been probably one of the biggest inspirations in my life in terms of as a pastor. And one of the things that he openly told us that he did and he publicised was that he would take days off or sometimes longer than that. He would go, he had quite a big family too. He would leave his family. He would leave the church community. He would leave every single person and he would go and he would sit in silence and solitude. Sometimes it was by the beach, sometimes he would go to the bush, wherever, and he would just sit and listen to God's calling, to God's voice. Because he believed that to actually hear God's voice, you had to create a space for him to speak. Because when we surround ourselves by constant noise, how is God supposed to break through that? So finding that space, that silence, is really important to finding that peace. Sabbath. Sabbath as rest and worship. Sabbath as resistance. And when I say this, resisting our culture of more, of actually turning off your phone and all of the ads that come through, subliminally influencing you to want the latest thing or to want, you know, the latest trend, to stop comparing your life to other people's lives, to actually turn off, to resist that culture of more, that, cons- that culture of consumerism that we just accept as normal. But the thing is, to actually enjoy the Sabbath, you have to learn to slow down the other six days. Because if you're running at 120% to make up for that day that you take off from everything, all you end up being is a corpse on that seventh day. You're just dead. You sleep the whole day. And then you wake up and you do it again. You don't actually get the rest that you crave. And in fact, this book is by a non-Adventist pastor. He goes to church on Sunday, but he practices Sabbath on a Saturday. And he swears by it. These are his principles that he lives by every single week with his family. Simplicity, saying no to consumerism and yes to a life of generosity. Um, One of the verses that I try to live by is Matthew 5 verse 48. And it says, live generously and graciously towards others. And again, that's a sermon in itself of what that actually looks like. But to be challenged by actually asking yourself before you click add to cart, do I actually need this? Or can this money be better used somewhere else? Slowing. Again, probably for me, this is one of the hardest. Cultivating patience, which is not one of my natural fruits of the Spirit. By deliberately choosing to place yourself in positions where you simply have to wait. Now, let's make this practical because, again, this goes against, for I would say, the majority of you, your natural inclinations. So here's some practical suggestions. What it actually means to put yourself in positions where you simply have to wait. Go the speed limit. Not three kilometres over. Not six, you know, Googling at what point do the speed cameras actually pick me up and book me. But the speed limit. Don't be one of those people, though, that goes five kilometres under the speed limit because then you're just being a nuisance to everyone else on the roads. Choose the slow lane. 
I don't know about you, but when I'm driving through traffic, which thankfully is not very often, I'm playing that constant game of like working out the maths in my head of like looking at the speed of this lane of traffic versus the speed of this lane of traffic, tracking a certain car to see how far they advance and going, all right, if I go to this one and then to this one, I reckon I can come out in front of that guy up there. It's a bit of a game, but what if you chose the slow lane and forced yourself to wait? Or another one, choose the longest checkout line at the supermarket. Again, it goes against everything we believe in, but force yourself to wait. And you might think this is all stupid and a waste of time, but it teaches patience and it cultivates patience. It teaches you that you can't always actually have what you want when you want it. But it means that you're actually in control of developing that skill in your own life so that in a situation where, when you're out of control, you are forced to wait for something that you want and you can't make that any quicker, you've already developed that skill in a very simple situation. That's a work in progress for me. Please don't hold me accountable to it. The reality is it's not easy. But there is power in following Jesus' life template, in accepting his invitation to come and follow me. I certainly haven't nailed it. I am no expert. But from my own small experiences in just trying to put a few of these practices into work, it actually does work. This antidote has ultimate healing power, the healing power of Jesus. So allow me to leave you with the invitation. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my equipment upon you. Let me walk side by side with you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest true rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. My question for you today is, will you accept his invitation? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this Sabbath day. Thank you for this weekly reminder to rest, to slow down, to seek you, to seek your will and to seek peace with you. Um, with developing patience in our lives, with escaping our culture and finding ways to seek you, to find sol- silence, to find solitude, to find rest and to find that time to invest with you. May we live proactive lives, not reactive ones, where we prioritise the things that really matter. And I pray that today, Lord, as we leave this place, that you will help each and every person to find rest to find that breathing space, that margin in their lives and that they will finally feel that that weight, that heavy burden has been lifted. We love you, Lord. We can't wait to see you. Amen.